Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24. Let us pray, everybody. We thank you, Lord God, for our time together here this morning. And now we come to the time, Lord God, where we need to hear from your word that we might be instructed, encouraged, maybe even just corrected and sharpened a little bit. Whatever it needs to be in us, Lord God, we pray that by your word you would work in us, that we would become in our spirits and even in our words and in our conduct more like our Lord Jesus. Lord, we know that we don't undertake such a study because we think we become perfected to the point where we can justify ourselves before you. Like we sang before, we know that we're nothing and we know, Lord God, that, that we're nothing without you, Lord Jesus, and that we want the whole world to see that and to know that. And even so, we offer ourselves for your service that you might be honored and glorified somehow through us. We know that we can't please you in and of ourselves. It's only Christ, your Son, who pleased you. Nevertheless, we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to you in that we want to serve you and carry forth the mission of preaching the gospel and making disciples. And so we study your word now and we pray that you would teach us about this subject and help us to learn and have spirits that are ready to receive, believe, and obey your word. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 24. Ready? Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. And I'm going to stop there for now because I believe that verse 28, regardless of how your Bible may be published, I believe that verse 28 attaches itself thematically a little better to what follows it because you can see that chapter 17 starts with now after six days and, and offering that very specific time factor deliberately shows that the writer meant to connect what he said before it to what he says after the preceding statement. And also I would note that verse 28, verse 27 starts with the word for which is grammatically a connection to the previous statement because you're giving a reason for something, for. But then verse 28 seems to start a new statement where he says, assuredly, I say to you, there is no such like therefore or anything like that. So we're going, that's your grammar lesson today, your expository uh, preaching lesson for today. I'll still say some thoughts about verse 28 next week in relation to the text we're going to study today, but I do believe it attaches itself better to the beginning of chapter 17. And just so you know, I'm not some 
renegade. There are lots of other preachers and theologians and even Bible publishers who view that the same way. Okay, uh, so let's go ahead and start this. I'm just going to say right off the bat that this is one of the most challenging things that Jesus said. And it's challenging for a couple of reasons, well, a number of reasons, but let me mention two. It's challenging, number one, because if you read it quickly and don't think about every phrase that's in it, it could seem to be promoting like a salvation that is based on works. And I think that that's something that's very easy to dismiss. Like, like when you get to verse 27, he talks about rewarding each according to his works, right? And maybe not a statement you're accustomed to seeing appear in one of the Gospels, right? Because we associate the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, primarily with messages that are given to the lost world to bring them to faith in Christ, and rightly so. Even John wrote in his gospel, there are many other things that Jesus did that aren't written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name, right? But I would say to you that we have the thorough, thorough, uh, exposition of the doctrines of salvation and, and God's grace and, and everything associated with that very soundly, thoroughly brought to us by his closest servants, the apostles, in the rest of the writings of the New Testament. Don't we not, do we not? You have the writings of the Apostle Paul in Romans and Galatians, especially very much expounding the doctrines of salvation being by God's grace and through faith and our works, whether religious works or moral works or charitable works, our works contributing nothing to that. But entirely, salvation is a, a gift of God. It is entirely of grace through faith. So even though when you quickly read the passage, you might seem like, it might seem like Jesus is calling people to himself, telling them that they need to deny themselves and follow him, and then I'll come back and reward those who do, um, I want to just make you aware of the fact that that's not supposed to be an evangelistic invitation. And I submit to you the very first words of verse 24 as evidence. Then Jesus said to his what? Disciples. So Jesus in this instance is not talking to the masses. He's not talking to the multitudes. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to those who believe in his name. So that's the one thing that sometimes makes this passage a very hard thing is because if not properly exposited and thought about, you might think that Christ is speaking of a works-based salvation, which of course he is not. So let's just dismiss that right away, all right? Maybe you didn't have any trouble with that in reading it, but... but uh, I just wanted to say that just so that we're all clear about that, that our salvation is entirely by God's grace through faith. I was thinking about that statement in Ephesians 2 this morning, that you have been saved by grace through faith. And I was thinking about the words by and for. You have been saved by grace through faith. So grace is that which emanates from God Faith, which is also a gift from God, that very verse says, 
but faith is the thing in you that, this might be a crude way of saying it, but your faith is the thing that activates, or maybe better said, appropriates the grace of God in your life. God, by his grace, saves those who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and even that faith is a gift. But that is how, and that is the only way that a person is saved, is by God's grace, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that right now, right here, right at the outset of this short sermon that I'm going to preach. But if you need salvation, you cannot find eternal salvation and the forgiveness of sins anywhere else or in anyone else or by any other means. You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You must abandon any thought of self-goodness or self-righteousness or self-moralizing. You must abandon any trust in any religious heritage, religious pedigree, any knowledge of doctrines or decrees or any association with churches or religious sects. You must abandon it all and in humble realization of your sinful state before God in humility and in repentance, turn to Jesus and believe on him with all of your heart. Trust in Jesus and he will save you from your sins. Neither is there salvation in any other, nor is there any other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Jesus. All right. Now, The second reason why this is hard then, a hard statement, is because of what it says, properly understood. So now we've set aside any difficulty that there may be with understanding who he's talking to. Now we realize that he's talking to his disciples. It's a good time to remind you that the great commission that Jesus gave to his church was what? Two words. Make disciples, not make converts, not get people to pray the sinner's prayer or raise their hands with their eyes closed and their heads bowed or walk down the aisle. Or The biblical call and the only biblical call upon the church is to make disciples. Preaching the gospel is an element of that call. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the evangelistic part of it. We preach the gospel to every creature, and the ones who believe in their hearts, the outward symbol, the outward act, the outward sign of the faith that they have in their hearts is that we baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But that's not the end of it. It goes on to say, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you. That's that's the bulk of what a disciple of Jesus Christ spends his his or her time at in their own life, your own discipleship, and in one way or another using your gifts in service to God. Everything we do, listen, look at me and listen to this. Everything that any church does needs to have in view, 
even if by a few degrees of activity it seems to be removed from this purpose, you should, in everything that a biblical church does, you ought to be able to, in your mind, understand how it contributes to the command to make disciples. The church is not about any other business. Along the way, we do lots of other things. We fellowship with each other. We do good works. We do things that bring glory to the Lord. We serve. We pray. We preach. We sing. We worship. And so much more. Whether it's serving a meal or donating money or singing a song or whatever it is that we do, in it, you ought to be able to see and know and understand the connection that that activity has to making disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the role of the church. Now, what we get to see in the passage today is Jesus himself at work doing that. He speaks to his disciples, and what he gives them is a discipleship lesson. And what I observe as I read and think about this passage is that this is fundamental discipleship. It sounds a bit cliche, but I have a kid in college and I went to college myself, so I understand what the term discipleship 101 would mean. If you've ever been to college or you're considering going, you'll take a 101 course, which is usually the basic course in any study or in any discipline. This is discipleship 101. This is basic discipleship. This is fundamental discipleship. Okay? It's not evangelism. This is not Jesus preaching the gospel to the lost. This is Jesus teaching his disciples what fundamental discipleship is and where fundamental discipleship leads. That's also part of this. So, in the beginning of it, he says, then, well, Jesus, it says, then Jesus said to his disciples, and here's where he starts, ready? This is the syllabus. Here's the opening statement in the syllabus. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What a great statement. So simple. It's a list. That's a list. There are four distinct things that are said in that sentence. The first one is an if. Two, three, and four are a then. If and then. Okay? So the first statement is if anyone desires to come after me. That's where it starts. You okay there, Kathy? We'll be done soon. All right? If you, if you, if you need to take a little break, it's okay. You wanted to, like, step. Are you, are you okay? Okay. Okay. Just a few more minutes. We'll be done. Great. So, uh, look. If anyone desires to come after me. It's interesting that it starts with that word. God is sovereign. His grace is given by his sovereignty. And yet here, the fundamental statement made to disciples is what? A statement about what? What's in here? In them. Their desire. If anyone desires to come after me. And may I say to you, there is no room 
Usually with an if, what you're presented with is a choice. Yes or no. Do you desire to come after me or not? This is the kind of statement that does not allow for that. It says, if anyone desires to come after me with the full expectation that if you are one of Christ's disciples, listen, listen, listen. If you are one of Christ's disciples, you desire to go after him. If that desire is not there, if you have no desire to go after him, then you've probably missed the point of the gospel. Maybe it was preached to you wrong. Sometimes when the gospel is preached to the lost, it is preached in such a way that it is just thrown out without any kind of intent to bring someone into what Christianity really is. We just share a few points, share a few verses, tell someone to pray a prayer, and then maybe never talk to them ever again. Jesus never did that. The disciples never did that. When you read through the book of Acts, as people came to the Lord in faith, there was always a mechanism in place to begin the discipleship process. What was that mechanism? You're sitting in it right now. Not the building, but the congregation, the church. That's the point of the church. The purpose of the church is to disciple those who believe We never just throw the gospel out and say, just pray this prayer and you're saved. No, we tell people, yes, come to Jesus, believe and be saved, but then they need to enter in, not in order to be saved, but to really get their life with Christ started right. They need to enter into the fellowship of other Christians and be taught and experience love and experience support. And what that ought to stir up is what? That's who said that. Someone's really with me today. Awesome. Very good. That's exactly what it ought to stir up is desire. Desire to follow him. Note the play on words between uh, verse 24 and verse 25. Both use the word desire. If anyone desires to come after me, And then it says what to do, deny the self, take up the cross and follow. But then look at verse 25. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So desires being compared with desire. You either have a desire to deny yourself and take up the cross and follow. You either have a desire to come after me, as Jesus said, or you have a desire to save your own life. You have, that is, you have a desire to preserve your own life and to pursue your own agenda, your own priorities, your own desires. Basically, you're going to walk after Jesus or you're going to walk after yourself. That's what's being put forth here. So element number one is we ought to examine our own hearts and see as believers in Jesus, as budding and ever-growing disciples of Jesus, do you have a desire to come after me, as Jesus said? Do you have a desire to go after him? You ought. Again, it's not an if that allows an acceptable option of Not really. This is not an acceptable answer to the question. 
when Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, the expectation is, if you really are his disciple, yes, you desire to come after him. He is speaking to people and saying, if you have a desire, expecting that the people who he's speaking to do. He's preaching to the choir, as we would say in that moment, right? Because he's not looking for people to say, not really. He's not even looking for them to say, not now or not yet. Because he offered the same sorts of things in Luke chapter 9, in those famous statements where he called people, called disciples to follow him. And then you remember the passage, right? They would say things like, let me go first bury my father. What did he say to that? Let the dead bury their own dead. You come and follow me. Right? So, so it was never, he never even allowed for not yet. It demands an affirmative answer. Yes, I desire to follow you. Then the second facet of it then, okay, that in place, what? If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, one, take up his cross, two, and follow me, three. Simple. Three points. Fundamental discipleship. Number one, deny yourself. What does that mean? What self-denial does he speak of here? He's not so much speaking of a practical day-by-day self-denial, like a monastic self-denial. I deny myself any food that tastes good. I deny myself a sexual relationship with my spouse. I deny myself sleep. I deny myself comfort. I deny myself any other sorts of... That's not what he's talking about. He's not, it's not a monastic call. What he's talking about is a complete... Surrender of self-will because of where self-will got you. Where did a life of living for yourself get you? Lost and condemned. Now he calls and says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. You're not going to do it like that anymore. If you're going to be Christ's disciple, it's going to be on his terms not on yours. And what you ought to say as a true disciple of Christ is, that's awesome. (laughs) Because I realized when I did it on my own terms, it didn't get me where God wants me to be. Lord Jesus, I have a desire to follow after you. I surrender myself. Then, it's deny yourself and take up his cross. We just read a story at the Lord's Supper which described Jesus carrying his cross and plausibly I think the understanding would be that having suffered so brutally under the Roman flogging, he was unable to carry his own cross and so a man named Simon, Simon the Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was called to carry his cross for him. That was an important part from the Romans' perspective of the whole crucifixion. It was never just grab a guy and slap him up on a tree and put a sign over his head and wait for him to die. Every single one of them was paraded carrying a cross. That was Roman tradition. 
It was to set an example. It was to show everyone that the person carrying the cross was about to die. They were literally a dead man walking. Right? And so that was an important part. That's why when Jesus couldn't carry the cross anymore, they they grabbed someone in the crowd to carry it for him because that was part of how the Romans executed people in addition to the sign of the accusation that they then put over the cross. This statement of Jesus happens obviously before he died on the cross. And we know from the previous text that they didn't really understand that Jesus was going to be crucified and die and then rise on the third day. It says after Peter's confession, you're the Christ and everything. It says that right after that, Jesus what? Jesus uh, began to tell them. He began to say to them, I'm going to suffer. And that's when Jesus, uh, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. So Jesus hadn't himself been crucified yet and they didn't quite understand it. So why does Jesus use this illustration? Because every one of them as a citizen and a subject under the oppression of the Roman Empire was very familiar with the way the Romans executed people. So that's how this would have hit them. Take up your cross, you know. Take up your cross means what? It means die to yourself. Take up the cross means you pick up the instrument of your own execution. That's a strong statement. But you can see how it goes hand in hand with deny yourself. Deny yourself and pick up the cross. So now not only are you called to the denial of the, of the selfish, self-motivated, strictly worldly pleasure-seeking life that you had before you knew Christ, but now his disciples are actually called to walk around like crucifixion sentences, dead to themselves. That's not intended to be morbid. It's not intended to be overly dramatic. And it's not intended to be self-flagellation. Woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. It is intended to reflect what Paul later eloquently described in his defense of the gospel in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. And I'll just read it to you. But Galatians 2.20, it's a pretty famous statement. Paul in Galatians 2 is talking about the law and how the law could never save anybody and how he by the law had died to the law. He was no longer living to the old religious system that could never save anyone, but then talked about how he did actually live. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. Listen to these famous but powerful eloquent words, right? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Listen to the words of a disciple. Listen to the words of someone who's writing to try to make disciples. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain, which ties in the theological point that he's trying to make 
which is that the law could never save him. And so Paul was expressing that he was dead to his former way. And that's what Paul's former way was. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious expert. He was one who was, was, was uh, talented and enviable in his understanding and living of the law of Moses and his enforcement of it among others. But when he recognized that only the grace of God could bring salvation, he died to it. And now the life that he lived, he was living by faith in the Son of God. He was completely dead to who he was. And now it was no longer he who lived, but Christ in him who lived. Christ living his life through him. There's the goal. There's the goal of the disciple. There's where discipleship should go. It's no longer I who live, but Jesus lives in me. Jesus lives through me. That means I deny myself. I pick up the cross, the instrument of my own death, the instrument of the death of the former man that I was before I came to Christ. I pick up that cross and now it's not that I don't live. It's that I live different. This life that I live in the flesh, this life that I'm living here and now, when he says in the flesh, that means not the future existence, but the existence here and now in his own body. This life that he now lives in the flesh, he lives by faith in the Son of God. That's how a disciple lives. That's how a disciple of Jesus lives. We walk by faith and not by what? We don't just walk around looking like the rest of the world does or looking like we used to and deciding, I want this, I want that, I must have this, I must have that. No, I live by faith. My agenda is God's agenda. And then the fourth thing on that list is what? He says, if anyone desires to come after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and what? What's the fourth thing? Follow me. There's a lot of follow me's in the Gospels, you know? One of my favorite statements is Jesus says, the Gospel of John records it. He says, my sheep know my voice and they, they follow me. Right? That's awesome, isn't it? Yeah, we follow him. How about this? 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6. Listen to this. He who says he abides in him, right? Who says they abide in Jesus? His disciples, right? Right? Do you, do you live? Do you stand? Do you abide in Christ? Well, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk. What? Just as he walked. That's what it means to follow. To follow Jesus means to get into the Bible and get into prayer. Be filled with his spirit. See how he lived. See how he related. See what he did. And by the power of his spirit, do the same. I used to tell people years ago, I probably haven't said it in a long time, but a real simple way to remember it. Imitate and obey. Imitate and obey. Everyone say it. Say imitate and obey. Say it again. Imitate and obey. That's what it means to follow Jesus. See how he lived and imitate it. Listen to what he said and do it. We call him Lord Jesus for a reason. 
Our Lord says, why do you call me Lord and don't do the things that I say? Do you desire to go after him? If you're really his disciple, you do. Well, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. Verse 25 makes the contrasting desire. Whoever desires to save his life, which is the opposite of whatever, everything else that he just said, you'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, you follow Jesus no matter what it may bring. What did I say to you a couple of weeks ago? Here it is confirmed again. We put more emphasis on carnal living here and now than the Bible does. And we do that to our own spiritual detriment. The Bible never encourages a life that just emphasizes the pursuit of this life's pleasures. It is always a life that is looking ahead to future glory, as this passage does eventually. Now, when you get to verse 26, he asks two questions, and these questions are so profound. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Answer? A complete, total loss and waste of a life. Listen to me. If you gain the whole world, but lose your own soul, you've gained nothing. You have wasted your existence. Zero benefit. And the shame of it is, you will know it one day. Good lesson for a disciple. Good lesson for a disciple. We're not to walk through life. We're not to walk through our existence in this world just grabbing as much of it, just grabbing the biggest piece of pie along the way as we can. That's not the call of the disciple. The call of the disciple is to deny the self, take up the cross, and follow. And a lot, you know, a lot of even professing Christians may not like this. A lot of them may even say, well, I didn't know this. Listen, can you see the parable of the sower coming to life? I can. You remember the parable of the sower? The seed, some of it falls by the wayside. Some of it falls on stony ground. You've got those stony ground hearers of God's word. Those are the ones where the, they hear the word of God and they like it, but as soon as any trouble comes, they're gone because they don't learn this or they don't accept this. Or there are those, the seed falls among the thorns and the cares of this world choke it off. They're the ones that never learn this or never accept this. But then there are those who the seed falls on good soil and it grows up and it bears fruit. Those are the ones that are the disciples according to this fundamental 101 lesson from Jesus. You understand? Second question. This one's a little, this one needs a little more fleshing out. Or what will a man give in exchange for his own soul? What's he really saying there? In other words, 
What he's saying is, when he talks about what would you give in exchange for your own soul, an exchange is the trade of two equal things. So in other words, what he's saying is, what is worth the same as your eternal soul? Same answer as the first question. Nothing. Nothing. I wrote it down this way, if this helps you understand it. What could your soul be bought for? That's really what it is. What will a man give in exchange for his own soul? And when you think of soul, think of the eternal you. See, we think we're this. But this, this is just a shell that carries really who I am. And that soul, that living soul that I am, goes on forever. Eternal life with the Lord or eternal separation and punishment in hell. Yes? Now, what what could your soul, think of what that is, what could your eternal soul be bought for? What would you give in exchange for your soul? What could be fairly traded for your soul? What thing or state of life or, or facet of life, if you could just have it, would be worth as much as your very eternal soul? See, you know how I always say that we over... Not always say, I've been saying it for a few weeks now, but it's a statement I said that has stuck with myself. I don't know if that means anything, but... We, we value this life here and now more than the Bible does. Here's a flip side to that coin. You ready? We undervalue the state of our eternal soul in favor of the state of our temporary lives. Do you understand? True or not true? We are tempted, we are inclined sometimes to undervalue the eternal soul that we are in favor of the pursuit of the pleasure and comfort of the temporary flesh that we are. That's true. Jesus is calling his disciples out of that. He is calling his disciples to rise above that. Well, you get the idea. Verse 27, what's he say? I don't need to flesh this out too much, but he says... For the Son of Man will come. You see what he does? This, and this is what good discipleship always does. Like I just said, we put too much emphasis on life here and now. We put not enough emphasis on the value of our eternal souls. So what does Jesus do with his disciples? He points them where? He points them to the future. And he says, look, if you're going to come after me, if you desire to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, Follow me. Nothing is worth the state of your eternal soul because one day I'm going to come back. And what does it say in the text? One day, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels and he will reward each, each what? Each disciple. Again, this is a word for disciples. He will reward each disciple He will reward each according to his works. Whether or not you are saved has nothing to do with your works, but what kind of reward you receive when the Son of Man comes has everything to do with 
your works. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, which is a a beautiful description of a disciple. We've been created in Christ Jesus. Unto, or for the purpose of, good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What do you think Jesus means when he says, lay up treasures in heaven? There is is nothing wrong with saying to a group of Christians, you ought to be motivated in your living by the fact that Jesus is going to come one day and reward what you do in service to him. But wait a minute, I can't do anything good for the Lord. I'm sorry if there's some theological principle you think is violated by saying this, but the words of Jesus to his disciples are and will not change. He will reward each according to his works. And he says, lay up treasures in heaven where thieves can't steal it, where moth won't corrupt it, rust won't corrupt it. You know, the normal decay of life. Lay up, don't store up treasures here. It's all going to be lost anyway. Store up treasures in heaven. How? By denying yourself taking up your cross and following him. Jed and Amy, come on back up and close us with a song.